Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations, and today you'll be hearing from the pastoral elders of Eternal City Church as they seek to answer the leftover questions from our Theology Untangled series. You'll be hearing questions such as, how does prayer work? Since heaven is perfect and we go there after we die, why do we need a new heavens and new earth? What does it look like to be a transformational church? What does biblical family look like? What does it practically look like to be a disciple maker? The substitutionary atonement, cosmic abuse question, and many more. All right, here we are with the elders of Eternal City Church, the pastors of Eternal City Church. We have the great, high, and mighty bishop of Wilkinsburg, Eddie Jones, <laughs> the theologian, the Pete right, Rue. The right reverend. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's the name moving forward. Right reverend Rue. Let's get it right. The right reverend Rue, the theologian. Par, the sociologist, par excellence, Justin Coxum. And the voice of one crying out on the podcast, <laughs> prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Today we're going to be rocking the leftover questions from the Theology Untangled series. And there were so many questions that we could have gone on for half a year in the series. So what we decided to do was not neglect any questions, but rather assign one question per elder. And that elder will hit that question with... Uh, some force, and then the others will have an opportunity to add their two cents. So the first question is, how does prayer work? It's a question about prayer. It's mysterious, but yet it's so simple. A child can do it. Eddie, how does prayer work? Mm, no. Okay. <laughs> well, to put it simply, uh, prayer is talking to God, and we petition God um, on behalf of whatever it is we need, and God answers. Now, that's a simple answer, but um, it's speaking to God from our hearts to God, and God speak to us, speaks to us primarily from his word, from scripture. That's how God responds, usually in prayer, um, although there are other ways he could answer as well, but primarily it's through scriptures and, uh, uh, and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, illuminating things to us. Um, so that's basically how it works, but there are there are... I don't want to say use the word conditions, but there are other factors um, when it comes to prayer, such as, um, first of all, we know that God hears us um, when we pray. The Bible says in Psalm 17, verse, verse 6, I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me and hear what I say. And Psalm 77 pretty much says the same thing. So we know that God hears us. And the Bible also says in First John that we know that he hears us if we pray according to his will. So that is one of the conditions is we pray according to God's will. We can't just ask God for anything uh, without it being God's will. So God hears us when we pray. First of all, uh, we need to be in right relationship with God. Um, we need to be turning from sin. We need to be repentant when we pray. So uh, sin, the Bible says in, in Isaiah 59, uh, your sins have separated you from you and your God. So we need to be in right relationship with God uh, in order for God to, to answer our prayer. Secondly, we need to have a humble heart. Um, Isaiah 66 and 2 talks about God um, uh, hears those who tremble at his word. Uh, I love that verse. So we need to have a humble heart. We need to be repentant, have a humble heart. And thirdly, we need to have a righteous life. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous, the Bible says, accomplishes much. So prayer is us pouring out our hearts to God and God responding to us according to 
what scripture dictates about um, prayer and us petitioning God and God answering us. And there are different types of prayers as well. We see in Philippians prayers of um, adoration, petition, supplication. There are different types of prayers. So to put it simply, we pour out our hearts to God um, through prayer and God responds to us through prayer because we are his children and in right, right relationship with him. That's good. That's good. Anyone else have anything they want to add to that? I would like to add that uh, if you're in the sovereignty camp, which we are, uh, it's often challenging to imagine prayer as doing anything. Uh, if you're looking for results, if you're looking for uh, some fruit to be born, and this comes from the, the text where Jesus says, your father knows what you need mm-hmm. before you ask it. And right, so then right. if you're using just pure logic, it's like, well, then why even ask if he already right. knows mm-hmm. what I need and what I'm going to ask for? Like, what's, what's the point? And, and the point is prayer is not just about asking things. Right. It's about Amen. a relationship with God. But I think it was Roger Nicole, the theologian, who said, prayer doesn't change God, but it changes things. Yes. So prayer does actually, as you quoted James, the prayer of a righteous man avails much or, or um, produces results. And so when we do pray, there's a mystery to it, but, but it does change things. It yes, changes yes. reality, but it doesn't change God. Right. right so I think right. the way we can work that out uh, theologically is if our prayers do have a result in time and space, then it was God's purpose and will that we pray those prayers and he chose to use those prayers as a means of accomplishing his good, perfect will. Amen. Does that make sense? You guys yeah, want to add yeah, to yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. And, and also I would say prepare, prayer also changes us. And it is about us building on our relationship with God too as well. Because um, we are children. And, and God wants us to um, know and understand that he is our source and our provider. And prayer is a means of us... Um, um, Establishing that, if you will, that uh, it's about a relationship with him, too, and not just about, like you said, just asking, asking, asking. He's not Santa Claus. Um, right, exactly. He's not a genie in a bottle. Yeah, exactly, right. So, um, so that's a huge part of prayer. More so, I think, it's just us establishing and building on our relationship with him as a father and as his sons and daughters. And that, and that invariably shows an element of dependence yes, on him yes. that is necessary um, for peace, for sustenance in life, for growth in faith, a dependence on God that is marked by a humbling of ourselves to even ask, to even pray. Um, oftentimes in our pride, we don't want to ask. We don't Because you're saying I have a need. Yeah, exactly. And then you're showing that you have a dependency on someone else, in this case God, to take care of you. Yeah. Is, there a, is there ever a sense in which we can ask God too much, like where he gets annoyed and he's like, leave me alone. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I'm just thinking of, of yeah. the way I interact with my children sometimes. Yeah, you know, you know. I don't think God gets annoyed with us. I think our motive always is important. Our motive is always important. And if we're asking... Obviously, if we're asking with the right motive, you know, the scripture talks about um, coming to God, um, being per- persistent with God, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but if you're coming, asking repeatedly because of unbelief, because you don't believe God, or you don't like the answer you got, you know, um, that can be an issue, I think. 
But it's not, I don't think God gets annoyed with us, but I think he would want us to understand, um, to understand why he may answer the way he does, whether it's yes, no, or not right now. Um, I think we need, he wants us to understand that. So I don't, I, to get annoyed with us, I, would, I wouldn't say that, but um, you should get annoyed with yourself if <laughs> you keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think That's just more about you than it does about God. Sure. I think about that parable where you have the, the widow, I think, who has yeah. a, yeah. Um, right, yeah. mm-hmm. a judge who's not just, and he doesn't yeah. care about justice, but because she keeps pestering right, him, yeah, yeah. he's like, okay, I'll give you mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're asking. Mm-hmm. But then Jesus says, and how much more mm-hmm. will your heavenly father? And the idea is there that God is just and he's greater than this judge who responds according to the woman's plea just because he's annoyed. Right. But I think the implication there might be that God doesn't get annoyed and he right. invites us to quote-unquote pester him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The yeah. first That's verse before good. that parable says Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. if we're praying according to God's will, that's something that we can pester God with mm-hmm. to ask for uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the salvation of a friend or a family member, to ask for his, you know, peace, to ask for things that the Bible says. Power to kill sin. Yeah, power, yeah defeat mm-hmm. our own sin. Ask God to change someone who we know the Bible would want this and not that in yeah. their life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think when you do that, it's not because you don't believe. It's because you know God is the source. And that's why you keep coming. You're not coming because I don't believe you you're going, You heard me the first time. But I don't believe you're going to do this. I'm going to press you until you do. No, it's because you know that God is the only one who can answer. So you go in belief knowing that he will answer. So I think the difference between that and knowing and, and going and, and in unbelief and saying, I don't know if you're going to do this. I'm going to ask you again. You know what I'm saying? That makes yeah. sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's James, James 4. You ask and you don't receive because you ask yeah, for the wrong yeah. motives. Yeah. Um, because you desire to use it for your passions. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, yeah. There's, there's an element of pestering God in the sense of you you are asking for the wrong motivation, mm-hmm. you, with the wrong motivation, with the wrong reasons. And it's, yeah, I wouldn't put it in the frame of mind of God gets annoyed. But I think there's an element of God where he's like, if you would just... Mm. Ask rightly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> if you would, if you would adjust your motivations and be aligned with my desires for your life, this would be a whole lot easier for yeah. you. There's a passage in Peter where Peter talks about our prayers being hindered because we're not yeah. treating our wives. Yes. If yes. you're married, yes. you treat your wives yeah. badly, wrongly, and so that hinders your prayer life, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. We could go down that road and say, "Oh, well, there's a ton of stuff that could hinder your prayers." Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. But why don't we move on because we're already. Uh, we could do a whole podcast on oh, prayer, yeah, right? Yeah. And so maybe we'll do that in the future. But Pete, since heaven is perfect and we go there after we die, why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? It's an interesting question. Um, I think the first thing we need to do is really distinguish the idea of heaven, God's dwelling place, and new heavens and new earth in terms of creation and what will ultimately be in new creation, restoration of all things. Um, so you have you have the dwelling place of God. Um, the Old Testament generally refers to this as the heaven of the heavens. Um, Nehemiah 9, uh, Deuteronomy, I think it's 1 Kings, has, says that phrase as well. Um, talks about the God's dwelling place being the heaven of heavens. Um, like deep heaven. Deep heaven, exactly, yeah. Called, yeah. Um, or when Paul talks about the third heaven. Mm. There's, there's an element of the dwelling place of God 
has been and always will be. It's eternal. Um, it is separate from what we see in terms of heaven and earth. And the dwelling place of God is perfect. Um, always has been, always will be. And so when we think of the new heaven and new earth, I think rightly we have to consider that to be what we understand to be created heavens in terms of the atmosphere, the universe, all that has been created. So new heavens and new earth, it's not referring to God's dwelling place is going to be renewed. It's going to be restored. Um, More talking about creation will be renewed. Um, Why is that? So you see, let's see, primarily two reasons. Um, First, redemptive history. So you have creation, God creates all things, fall in Adam, redemption in Christ, and then restoration of all things. And so the, the final renewal of the new heaven and new earth is culmination of all of redemptive history. It's, it's, all <coughs> the, it's basically God righting all the wrongs that occurred because of Adam. And, so, and he does that through the work of Jesus Christ. Um, so there you have redemptive history. And as you get into the Old Testament, you see all that rooted in the covenants as God deals with man, whether that's through Adam and you get to, to Noah and Abraham and David, all through the covenants, it's God's continued revelation of how he's restoring and renewing all things. Um, secondly, I would say is resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15, uh, actually I'll turn to it real quick so I don't, re, I don't mess up the mm-hmm. verse. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonor, what is raised, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So when we think of resurrection, second advent of Christ, second coming of Christ, he will resurrect all those who are in him. And in that resurrection, we will receive glorified bodies. So there's an element of new heavens and new earth that is both spiritual and physical. And because of that, you think of heaven now where... People who pass from this earth in Christ, they go to be with God. They don't have physical bodies. Their, their body has not yet been resurrected. And so the, the resurrection, which it's apt that we're talking about that on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter, that rooted in the resurrection of Christ is our future hope for resurrection. And so in a physical heaven and earth, we will have a physical body and a glorified physical body. And I would say those are the two main reasons. First, first part, distinguish heaven, dwelling place of God from created order. And then because of like, why is it necessary? Redemptive history, God's culmination of all things, and ultimately the resurrection of our bodies to bring about a, a fully renewed, a fully restored creation. So you would say that the non-deep heaven is broken, all of it? Yeah. It needs to be fixed. Correct. Correct. So do you do you believe 
you, you could talk for three minutes on this, right, brother? <laughs> you're, you're the pre-millennial guy among us. So do you believe that the earth is going to be, as Matt Chandler says, you know, shot with, with a, a missile like the Death Star and blown up and, and destroyed and then God remakes everything? Or do you believe it will be renewed and restored, taken from what is, and then just refurbished, re, redone, remodeled? So I, I do not believe it will be a destruction and full recreation. I do think that you will see a renewal and restoration of what was former prior to the fall, and in an even greater sense, um, even greater than it was. So, no, I do not do not take the position of a missile coming into <laughs> So what does Peter mean then when he says the elements will melt with fervent heat? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I, I don't know if I fully understand where Peter's coming from there. Um, I'd have to look at it a bit deeper. Yeah. But... Um, that is an interesting, interesting concept to consider. But I, I, from what I've studied and what I've looked at at this point, I, my conclusion is it's not a full destruction of the earth. Yeah. That there's an element of just restoration, renewal, um, and then you. So you'll have the return of Christ, then a thousand-year literal <laughs> millennium. Um, <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Chris doesn't think so. <laughs> and then Ooh, beef among the elders. Oh boy, what a podcast! In, in, in secondary <laughs> items, non-primary things, Amen. such Amen. as millennial millennial views. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I would say. Yeah, like I, I'm with you on that because I, the Earth was destroyed in the flood, yeah. but it wasn't destroyed. Destroyed. Yeah. It didn't blow up, and then God made a new Earth. He he destroyed the current state of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even the separation of the continents, I think we could point to the flood and say there was a major disruption. But just like volcanoes that erupt and destroy everything in their path, that, that is the soil for the paradise that we call Hawaii. You know, and all those islands in the tropics, those are, that's volcanic soil that's so rich, but yet it has this destructive nature and element to it. Yeah. Are you on our post? I am leaning off. It's not the question, Jason. I am leaning <laughs> off. Yeah, so I used to be post-millennial, or I'm sorry, I used to be pre-millennial hardcore, and I can give you all the arguments. However, as I've studied it and read, uh, I'm just not sure. I'm not solid. Yeah. But I lean all millennial at this point. Yeah. Maybe that's a different podcast. We'll do yeah, maybe. The millennials. I would, that'd be fun. We don't have to talk about post-millennialism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, the post-millennial view, depending on who's teaching it, can sound compelling, too. Yeah. It used to sound ridiculous to me, but then when you listen to certain people talk about it, you're like, oh, okay, I see that. Mm-hmm. I, I can see that. So, all right, Justin, you're up. What does it look like to be a transformational church? How do we care for the community and care for each other, believers, as well? Is the emphasis of the local church to go deeper with each other or to outreach or Equally both. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Long question. Yeah, yeah it's a good question. <laughs> There's a lot there. Um, I think the maybe most clear picture we have of a transformational church would be Acts 2. Right after Peter preaches a sermon, mm-hmm. thousands of people get saved. And going into like verses 40 th- 42 through 47, it talks about how they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to prayer. And God added daily to their number of those who were being saved. So 
I think that if I think of a transformational church, it's probably what we all want. Someone's preaching, lots of people are getting saved, everyone's living together in community, we're having meals together, people are getting saved left and right. And to me, um, if I look at that passage, and I'm trying not to say this not as a cop-out, I think the answer is both. You have to commit to being amongst one another, learning and growing in the faith, and at the same time, being around people who can be invited into this radical transformational community. Because Acts 2 also talks about how they share their possessions mm. and no one counted their own property as their own. And so that was attractive to the people at the time and would probably be attractive to people today, being able to live in a community where people would really love and care for each other. So when I think of how do we balance uh, outreach and the sort of, I guess you could say, discipleship or building up of the, the body of believers, uh, I, I heard this from a former pastor, I think it really, in this case, is, is applicable. I wouldn't think of it as a 50-50, we do both. I would think of it like 100-100, like we go fully after each of those things to the best of our ability. And when I think about the church, the church is made up of individual members who all have different giftings. And so I want to push the discipleship and community people to be 100% like go live in your gifting. And we also want to push the evangelism people who just want to be out sharing the gospel mm-hmm handing out tracks, you know, feeding the homeless, doing all the outreach, like do that to 100% of your ability. Because when you have a church who's made up of people, like people can operate in their gifts to different degrees. Mm -hmm. And I think what the church and its ideal state looks like is the people who are passionate about evangelism are still helped and still can encourage and have the people who are passionate about community and being together come alongside them. Instead of fighting each other and saying, you should be more like me. Exactly. And vice versa, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, if you look at Acts 6, like that's the job of, of the apostles and the church leadership to be able to say like, hey, well, not not saying we're apostles, right, right. but that's the job of the church leadership is to be able to say, all right, we have this need in our community. In that case, it was widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food. We've got this need in our community. How do we take care of it while at the same time continuing to devote ourselves to word and to prayer, which is the job of the leaders of the church, but then they appoint deacons, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have our first model of deacons being appointed to make sure that food is being distributed fairly. So I think we have that same uh, burden in our church today as leaders is to make sure that like people's needs are being met, that people are operating in their gifts, and that we're doing both. That we're a church that's people come, they're welcomed, they're brought into a radical community, but at the same time, we don't just like insulate ourselves. Mm-hmm. But that community is attractive to the outside world, and we have ways to uh, share that goodness with people, be it through evangelism, through community events, all, all types of things. So... Um, I think there's a, there's a couple couple good books that, that kind of dive deeper into this. One would be Transformational Church, uh, Ed, Stetzer. Ed Stetzer. And then the other one is, uh, it's not specifically about this topic, but I think it unpacks the gospel in a way that inevitably leads to talking about this, and that's uh, When Helping Hurts. Yeah, great book. Where he... Uh, Ficker. Ficker, and, yeah. And uh, Colbert. Yeah. Cool. We'll get the names. <laughs> we'll get the names. Yeah. But he just unpacks the gospel in a way where it's like, yeah, this is something that you should share with people, and this is also something that lead, should lead to the transformation of a local church insofar that people desire to come and to be a part of it. So that's my, my attempt to answer that So it's that not question. either or. It's yeah. both in, yeah. Yeah, yeah like um, Pastor uh, Eric Bernard in Brooklyn, New York, uh, Christian Cultural Center, his church, I think the theme, one of the things they emphasize in their church is Christ and culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they talk about that a lot, but, and, and the importance of that, of, of you going out into your culture, mm-hmm. um, representing Christ and having Christ in the culture mm-hmm. um, through whatever gifting that is, whether it's your natural job or whatever it may be, um, yeah. um, a talented gift or whatever. But doing that within the culture 
um, sharing the gospel mm -hmm. uh, through Christ and culture. And I think that's very important. It's, that it's not either or, it's both and. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask this question just to push a little further. Um, when you hear transformational, you can get, and I had these kind of like naive visions uh, for our church earlier on, early on. I thought that what we would see was all these people coming to Christ and that would inevitably lead to people beginning to care about not just their own moral standing as far mm -hmm. as like righteousness goes, but beginning to care about their property and their neighborhood. And so like I had this vision that like people would not only get saved, but then we would see a transformation of the community itself. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I had to be humbled because <laughs> like I, I just had two big visions for uh, our, maybe our people at the time. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think that's a wrong vision Amen. No. because Amen. you do begin to realize like if you're taught correctly, the, the cultural mandate was the original design of God for Adam and Eve pre-fall. So we are supposed to have dominion over our communities. And that might look like, like, hey, the windows are broken. Let's get new windows. Hey, the, the landscaping is terrible. Let's, let's fix the landscaping. Now, granted, you need resources to do that. Right. And I understand if we're going to pay for the electric to stay on or we're going to get new shrubs, it's clear right. we're going to get new shrubs. Mm -hmm. Kidding. <laughs> Everyone looked at me like, what? Yeah. So I, I get it yeah, that yeah. money has a big to yeah. do. And if you have enough money, you could just pay the landscapers to come yeah. in and make yeah. it look pretty. But yeah. Yeah. so to talk to that for just a minute, and especially being in a, uh, you know, a lesser economically rich community, um, it would be, you would notice a transformation if we were speaking to that degree where you might not notice that in Fox Chapel so much. Mm. If mm. that happened. Good point. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, Is that the church's responsibility? I think in Center Church, Tim Keller talks about um, your church has embraced the gospel and is living the gospel faithfully in your city where if your church were to shut its doors tomorrow, mm. would the community miss you in mm. any real mm. sense? Mm. And I think that's it's a, it's a good thing to think about, but I also think on the other side of that, well, there could be a lot of like very, uh, uh, I would say, fluffy things that we could do that people would love and really appreciate, but that actually wouldn't bring any transformation that's unique to the gospel. Mm. And so I think... Like, explain that just real quick. So if we're, the, you know, if we're like doing carnivals and having cookouts all the time, which are good things, um, I, I don't, in and, of them, in and of themselves, I don't think that those things are bad, but if that's not leading to people getting to hear the gospel or have the opportunity to be encouraged or to be uh, taught about Jesus, then a lot of places can... Mm -hmm. have barbecues and carnivals and yeah. backpack drives, right? Those things are good, but they're not the end in themselves. And so I think we have to balance the tension of doing things that will um, meet people's felt needs while at the same time pointing them to their deepest need, which is Jesus. Yeah. And if you get into doing either one of those exclusively, you're probably moving a little far off of presenting the gospel faithfully. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't want to be the church that says, well, keep warm and well fed. Like, we'll pray for yeah. you if, if the community's struggling. But you also don't want to be the church that's like, well, you know, we'll give you food and clothes and all these things. We're actually not going to ever talk about the gospel. Yeah, there's yeah. deed and yeah. no word ministry. Yeah. So, yeah. again, it's 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 100-100. You have to really drive at both of those things. Yeah, I think even some churches, some Christians think like this, that the church's job is to only... Um, help the community and yeah. feed the poor and clothe the naked, whatever, like you said, which are great things. But that's all you do. You don't get into other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you just stay in that lane, quote unquote, which is not biblical. You know, that's, that's, that's incomplete. 
like that's only half a part or a part of what we should be doing. Um, we should also primarily be giving the gospel. There's always an end uh, means to an end of what we do it should be. Um, not that we have bad motives or, or secret motives, yeah. but um, we want to get people the gospel primarily first. And some, some of the ways of doing that is going out into in the community and helping out and, and, and doing that uh, properly and, 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 and humbly and lovingly um, with the right heart and the right spirit. So it is. It is both. I think both of those requ- both of those are required to have a good biblical church yeah. and biblical worldview. And I think that that concept has to be applied to people and not necessarily to events or to programs. Mm. So I would much rather build and invest in people who can meet felt needs and also share the gospel, mm. as opposed to like in this one hour event. Yeah, we're going to yeah. like do a backpack drive and then someone's going to share the gospel where it's like kind of clunk. I'm, I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying when you try to do it, like mm-hmm. compress it into a program or make it a thing, mm-hmm. okay. as yeah. opposed to like, we have people who care about people yeah. who meet their needs and also are very equipped to be able to share the gospel. That's where I think you, you, you live the balance out. We can't necessarily, cause I'm fine. If like, we would want to have a barbecue and like, you know, you pray and you share the gospel with people where you can, but like, there is no like metric of like, well, we got to give everyone a tract yeah. or we have to like, <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to spend half the amount of time preaching as we do eating hot dogs. Like, no, I think we can we can yeah. think about it in terms of like equipping people to be that as opposed to like making programs that, that try to reflect that in some rigid sense. Yeah, if if the if the mission of the church is external, like it's something we do rather than something we are, you're yeah. speaking of like an identity, like yeah. you are uh, your identity is you're the church and the church is the mission of God mm-hmm. versus if it's just something, an activity that we do, yeah. then it becomes that yeah. kind of barbecue, which I'm agreeing with you. Like, we're going to do some barbecues in the summer, so we're not hating on the barbecues. Yeah. But it, it can't just be an event thing. Like, yeah. our, oh, what do you do for outreach? Or what do you do for transformation? Or what do you do for, oh, well, we do these events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're saying it's much more than that. Yeah, it's much more. There has to be people who are able to bring transformation. People who can, because, like, back to the last question, you know, people work in different spheres. We have people that are teachers. We have people that drive for Uber and Lyft. We have people that work in the professional sphere, people that are doctors. Like, all of that needs to have the gospel brought to it in word and deed. And so, again, if we just try to make an events, like, well, we'll do these events where we'll try to just cram it all into an hour, I think it's more productive to think about it in terms of people because then they can be the church for the, you know, 40 other hours a week sure. they've been working as opposed to just the two hours they might spend at an event. Yeah. What? What? So this question actually relates to Pete's question, right? Because you said we were talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We're talking total transformation there. Mm-hmm. So are we to like work for partial transformation? Do you have to be a post millennialist to believe that we should be doing that, or what? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> no, you don't need to be post millennialist okay. to believe that. Um, I because if it's the Death Star, then what are we doing anyway? Why are we trying to? Yeah, do anything to the to the properties and you know it's one of it's one of those elements of as we as we think about we're living in this time of a broken in between we have the the time between Christ's first advent and second advent um, we, we're living in this time where where sin is still around where there's still a presence of of Satan doing what he does in the world to destroy and corrupt. Um, and so while it can feel like what's the point, uh, we do have, as you mentioned earlier, a, a cultural mandate to care for, have dominion over, over the world. Um, that's, that's not just rooted in 
us as Christians that's rooted in us as people mm. that is part of our creative creative mandate um, so like being in the Imago Dei you are a culture culture yeah. mandate so so God in creation um, the first place I heard this was Tim Keller he may have heard it from others but God made order out of chaos in creation mm. and um, and so we as made in his image yeah. are to do the same to take what is chaotic and make it orderly and that applies to what Justin said in our work in our communities, in our interactions, everything, mm-hmm. we should be striving towards producing a something that is orderly rather than chaotic. Yeah. And so that means helping in the community where we can to to improve things. Some of the examples you mentioned, Chris, I think we're we're good, uh, and, and in all areas of life, that's what we should be pushing yeah. towards. And, and it just struck me that that's kind of discipleship too. Mm-hmm. Discipleship is teaching them to obey all I've commanded, and so you're taking that chaos of their lives. Yeah. And you're bringing it into God's order. Yeah. So it is a both end. It's it's a in a creation physical sense, and in a life discipleship sense. So back to the whole hundred yeah. hundred. It's good. We and again we could do a whole podcast on that too, and maybe we should. But uh, the books again were uh, Transformational Church, Ed Stetzer, and then One Helping Hurts, Steve Corbett, and Brian Ficker. Fantastic book. It's on audio too. Uh, both of them actually. All right. Next question. I believe it's for me, and it is, what does a biblical family look like in family devotions worship? So, like, what what does family devotions or family worship look like? Um, I have a text I would like to read first, and it's from Deuteronomy 6. It's the the Shema here, which means here. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, I think is the foundation for biblical family and what it looks like. It's very general, I think, on purpose, because the particulars are going to look different for every family, Mm -hmm. depending on their dynamics. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So there, I think you have a general principle of like, what does biblical family look like? Well, it looks like you're bringing the Christian worldview to bear mm-hmm. on everything mm-hmm. from the kids in screen time, screen time to, you know, them asking for the fifth popsicle of the day mm-hmm. to wrangling them for, you know, family time in the Bible. Um, and, and I think that it's general there on purpose because it's supposed to be, I think the dynamic is all the time versus a certain time. Yeah. And so, you, you know, if we're living out our Christianity consistently, that would look like consistency in the home too. So if I am uh, grumpy with my kids, which I tend to be sometimes, I need to correct that but let them know that dad is uh, grumpy because he's a sinner in need of a savior and that I should be more patient as God is patient with me as his son through Jesus Christ. And so there's letting the gospel bear on my, my parenting. And so you, I think you can do that in a hundred different ways, you know? So praying for your food at dinner is teaching the kids that God is the ultimate provider. Mm -hmm. And then we give thanks to him for his provision. 
this is not just because dad went to work and got a paycheck and then we went to Aldi and whatever. No, it is that, but those are all God's means of providence to bring us his gifts ultimately. So it, it looks like that times all of life, all of life. So I would also then want to read Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, and this is after the deep theology of 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, and then 4 to 6, Paul gets into the the practicals, and then breaking into the household codes, uh, he gets the children. So Ephesians 6, 1 to 4 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's the mandate for fathers. I think that's connected to the previous chapter. Husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, gave himself up for her. And so there's also this mandate to the leader of the home, the father, to teach the children diligently. And that's not to say the mother doesn't, because Proverbs, listen to your mother's instruction. It's very clear that both parents are responsible for the raising and the instruction of the children. However, I do think that the, the task primarily falls to the, to the dad. But that could look like, so I, I know quite a few families that dad is not the teacher gift mm-hmm. and the wife is. So that, that could look like him delegating, mm-hmm. but helping to get it done. You know, like setting up the opportunity, mm-hmm. gathering the kids, showing his, I think this is important, therefore you should think this is important. So let's gather. And, and the mom, I think, can, can teach if she has that gift. I don't think it's, it necessarily means that the husband has to be the one to lay down you know, the teaching or the instruction or the, the discipline, though he should be the one guiding and, and leading that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the second part of the question was, um, what does family devotions or family worship look like? And I think that that too can look very different for different families. So for me personally, um, I have uh, quite a few children's books. One of the children's books I have is... Um, it's about prayer by R.C. Sproul, and it's uh, Luther's Barber. Have you guys ever seen that book? We have it in the bookstore. Yes, mm-hmm. um, R.C. Sproul uh, tells a story about Martin Luther getting a haircut from his barber and his barber asking him to teach him to pray. And he really did. That really did happen in history. And Luther wrote a little book for his barber on how to pray. And uh, in that book, they, they show this family like around a dinner table and you got a toddler and you got two, you know, like maybe like eight and seven year olds and you got a mom and dad and they're all orderly around this table and they're praying and like, and that's kind of the vision I have for family devotion, but that's not what it looks like at all. <laughs> it's like, stop talking, pay attention. Mm-hmm. You want to go to your room, mm-hmm. put that down. And that's kind of what real life family <laughs> yeah, devotion yeah, looks like. Yeah. It does. It's like the, the two year old gets up and runs away or someone steps on the dog and so So I think if you have this vision of like everyone needs to be orderly and paying attention and everyone's going to love it every time, Mm -hmm. you're in for straight frustration. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's been consistency over time and, and finding kind of the sweet spot. And for us we found that like right before bed is the sweet spot because they're, they're settled down, they're tired, they're not, you know, you know, fired up and ready to go play. And they're not like, 
you know, tapping their feet and tapping their hands on the, the table. Popsicle sugar. Is yes. <laughs> yeah. So like, I think that for each family, they got to find what works. If you can gather the kids and they all sit down and shut up and listen to you for a half hour around the dinner table, that's fantastic. But I just don't see that as an ideal that everyone has to keep to. So for, for my family personally, we have had to figure out when is the best time and how can this get done. And I want to get it done in such a way where the kids don't hate it. Right. Like, oh crap, right. it's devotional yeah. time. Like I hate sure. this, you know? No, I want them to look forward to it. And thankfully they do. They're like, can we read? Can we, can you read? And then they have certain books they like and we go through Bible passages. Now recently we, we have been um, doing it at dinner and it, it was very much a struggle at first. And there was quite a few times where we were just like, all right, forget it. Not tonight. You know, it's, everyone's getting mad and angry here. And that's, it's not an opportunity for anger and discord. And I think there's some spiritual warfare there too. Um, you know, I think that Satan hates families and he hates family worship and family devotion. So I think that that we were experiencing a little bit of that on the front end, but we just kept, we just kept at it and didn't give up. And, and I think that that's part of how you get it done is you just don't give up and you keep putting your hand to the plow and eventually there will be fruit, but you will find probably some hard ground at first. Mm -hmm. Although... Um, I think if you start very young, like very young, to where this is all they've ever known, yeah. you can build that rhythm from the very, very front end. But, you know, different traditions do different things for family worship. And, you know, I think the Presbyterians do this well, where they, you know, from infancy, they, they sit the kids down and you're singing songs and you're doing catechism and you're reading scripture. And so if, if it's been all you've known from the time you're a child, then it will be like the norm. But if you're just going to now institute this, uh, expect a little bit of pushback. Sure. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah. Do you take time? I know your girls aren't super old yet. And they're eight. They're both eight. of them. So almost nine. Do you take time to explain why you have a time of family devotions, family worship at this point? Um, I don't think I have ever like given them an instruction, but I I have said to them, you know, we need to know God. You know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. We need to know God and we know him through his word and we see his world through what he has said and we learn about him and we grow. Um, but, but I don't think I have ever like sat down and, and gave a, a, even a short lecture on that. And it may not even be appropriate for eight-year-olds. I'm thinking parents of older kids, preteen, teenagers, where they're much less willing to just go along with mom and dad and it may be necessary to, to I mean here's why we're doing this yeah. like, explain a bit of the reasoning behind it not just it's devotion time and you haven't done it before right. and yeah. now you're trying to institute it with a 15 year old right. yeah. you're like well yeah. what is this I'm right. already in the middle of like right. I, don't, I don't like listening to my parents right. um, and now you want me to do something else so. yeah. I mean the mandate in scripture is clearly there right we read in Deuteronomy yeah. 6 we read in Ephesians yep. 6 it's there um, I don't think there's a template laid down in scripture, yeah. so it can look very different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, I do think it's important that you do it. That's the important right, thing. Right, and you right. figure out what works for your family. And my, my encouragement would be if the kids hate it, do it differently. Mm -hmm. Do something different. Yeah. Don't, mm -hmm. You don't want them to like hate the, the time the family spends together around the Bible and around prayer. Yeah. Right. right? Right. Any suggestions for people listening to this who are like, my kids hate it, what do I do? <laughs> Beat them. I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, 
What age do you think is a good age to start that? I would say, man, if you can start them from the time they're very, very young, the better. You know, but it would be very short. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, for someone like my son who's not even two yet, we might just go through a verse or two. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. Mm -hmm. And then as he grows and is able to pay more attention, Mm -hmm. then you can go longer. But um, I I think that if you can go from the youngest, uh, that they know it's the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, like my son Israel, he really kicked back on the front end of being in the crib. But Mm -hmm. now he knows, man. Like, we say, all right, it's bedtime. And he knows I get a... I get a sippy cup with milk, mm-hmm. I get my soft blanket, mm-hmm. I get my instrumentals, and he doesn't whine at all. He's just, boom, he's out. He's so used to it now. So I think that there's something to that yeah. where if you haven't done this and they're six, seven, eight, it's going to take some yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some time. Okay. okay, let's move on. Next one is for Eddie, and it's what does it practically look like to be a disciple maker? And to, uh, to believers and to the lost. So clearly Jesus did have some disciples who were not born again, mm-hmm. and they left him at times. So I think that's where that question is coming from. What could it look like practically? So they want like concrete things here. Um, to do discipleship to believers, disciple believers, and to unbelievers. Well, I think um, a couple things. Uh, first one is simply loving people which I think is very practical. And there's many ways to do that, that you show love to people, whether it's um, some type of aid um, financially or just being supportive in a tough situation during a tough time um, and being there for that person and loving them in the midst of that and offering your support in whatever way you can. Um, so I think that's primary is, is people seeing that you love them genuinely and you're not, there's not a motive behind it. Other than the fact that I just love you because God loves me and I want to share that. So I think that's the first and foremost important thing to do is to just love people. And that's for obviously both believer and non-believer. And I think particularly for the non-believer, I think that would be very important to do. Um, like I said, there's many ways to do that, to express that love. Second, I think a living, being a living example to people. Um, being a, living a disciple life yourself that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and living that example before them um, uh, and letting them see that you are not just, um, uh, th- that you are practicing what you preach. Um, so I think being a living example to people, uh, uh, believers and non-believers, as a disciple yourself. Thirdly, I think is just teaching people. Uh, a discipler is a teacher. Um, Matthew 28, going to all the world, making disciples, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded of you. And so being a teacher and also going back to, to being the example, Paul said, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, so he was saying, OK, as long as I'm following Christ, you're good to follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. As I be an example of Christ, you can follow me. Um, and also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he, said, he says this, in 2 Timothy 2, 1, You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul is saying, first of all, um, what you have heard from me, first of all, in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men. So first of all, it starts with me. And then you, I commit to you, and you commit to faithful men, and then they commit to others. So there's like four generations there of people um, who are being discipled. And so I think that's the pattern in Scripture. It's, it's, it's repetitive. 
just just making um, not clones of yourself, but disciples of Christ. First of all, Jesus is the example. He's the ultimate teacher. And then uh, if I'm following him and then you follow me. And so I think loving people, uh, being a living example and then teaching people and teaching primarily scripture and what what the Bible says about everything, (laughs) Uh, how, how we are to live. Um, who Jesus was, um, how to follow him. So being a teacher um, is, is one of the very practical ways that you disciple people, believers and non-believers alike. alike. And I think um, it may be different um, what you teach to a non-believer as well as a believer, although there, there, there will, will be some overlap, I think. But a non-believer may have different questions that a believer would have. And so I think you need to be prepared to answer those. And I, and, and, and I think it's important that you do. A lot of times we think of discipleship after somebody becomes saved. You start to disciple them after that. But I don't think that's necessarily correct. You can disciple. I remember Carl Ellis talking about, he said, I disciple uh, people and then they get saved. Hmm. He said, I disciple Muslims and then they get saved. <laughs> you know, so you don't wait till, till they get saved to disciple them. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important too. Understand it's like the, uh, that Christianity is, Explored model in a sense where you're like you're walking them through the whole Gospel of Mark, and then in yeah. the end, there's hopefully a response. Right. Yeah. You are discipling. That you are discipling exactly. Yeah. The world may call it mentoring, but I think it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, uh, the scripture may be. I think it's the same thing. The mentoring, discipleship. Um, so yeah. So I think those are three very practical things you can do to non-believers and believers to like, alike to make disciples. That's good. Anyone want to add anything? I think if we don't assume, uh, make sure to not assume the gospel, even amongst people mm-hmm. who are, you know, maybe committed or have gotten saved or have made a decision for Christ, because we never really know. And mm-hmm. I think if we, if we keep the gospel message central in what we're doing and what we're talking about, even as we're seeking to grow people in maybe very specific areas of their lives, like their marriage or their parenting mm-hmm. or their work life, uh, we'll avoid being moralistic where you just kind of become a better person but continually remind ourselves of Jesus died, was resurrected, sent us the Holy Spirit so that we can live by his power. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to try to be good people. We can mm-hmm. depend and rest mm-hmm. that he was good and receive his continual uh, uh, sanctification of us. So I think even amongst people who maybe would say that they're, or that they're Christian or that they're saved or would have some type of confession to not assume the gospel and continually make it central to what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was Carson who said, one generation assumes the gospel and the next one forgets it mm. completely. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay, Amen. let's move on. Eddie, or I'm sorry, Pete. Uh, Back to me. Is substitutionary atonement cosmic child abuse? Mm. That's a heavy one. Mm. No. <laughs> let's move on. Moving right on. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, so this... This is a question. I think I actually submitted this one. Um, (laughs) Answer his own question. (laughs) And uh, not so much that I struggled with whether or not that was an accurate statement, but more it has it's become a fairly popular. It's it's become Mm. very popular in the last decade or so. Mm. Liberal circles, especially. Mm. Um, So the first time I was exposed to this topic was in a book called "The Lost Message of Jesus," Mm. um, where by the postmoderns. Um, yeah, it was Steve Chalky. Um, he's the author of the book and one other individual. I don't remember his name. He was part of what was considered like emergent church, mm-hmm. which I don't even know if they call it's called that anymore. I don't even think that exists anymore as a term. Brian McLaren. Brian Rob McLaren, Bell, Rob Bell, yeah, that, um, all yeah, that whole yeah, group. Yeah. 
So that that thinking has infiltrated some of evangelicalism to where the idea of penal substitutionary atonement is now kind of looked down upon. Um, you even see people, as I'm scrolling through Twitter this weekend, people I follow um, referencing back to others who, of, of all weekends to do it, um, saying Jesus didn't really die for... Like, didn't substitute himself for sin. It's like, what, what, is, what are we doing? What was he doing, just being an example? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, <laughs> so I think that's it's a good place to start in what are what are the different theories of the atonement. Because um, you have a number of them out there. One is the moral example theory that you know, Jesus, he his death was basically him setting an example of what love and sacrifice looked like. And, and so that we have a, a model to emulate. We have a model to follow in the sacrifice and love of Christ. And, and ultimately it's flawed, that theory in particular, um, because it, it, it assumes that men are men and women are spiritually alive, that mm-hmm. there's, there's no need for forgiveness of sin, there's no need for it because we're not depraved, we are spiritually alive. Um, then you have other views like the ransom theory, Christus Victor theory. Um, the ransom theory is an interesting one where... Basically, Jesus' death was to pay a ransom to the devil, yeah, um, yeah. and mm-hmm. pay the devil for the the souls of of people who would trust in him. Um, the prosperity guys pick up on that too. Yeah, you know. yeah, they're they're big on that. Um, there's debate about whether C.S. Lewis actually believed that or not. Um, he was never really super clear with what his view of the atonement was, but you could get that from Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the Aslan's death paid the right. Paid for the white witch, Um, but again, there's there's problems in that one. Mm -hmm. You go to the satisfaction theory with Anselm in the 11th century, um, laid the the framework and the grounding for penal substitutionary atonement, and and so the question then comes. Steve Chalky brings up, and he says, I actually have one of his quotes. He says, "Penal substitution is is child abuse." and paints a picture of a father different from the nature of Jesus. So rather than loving like Jesus does, the father actually kills him. And he goes on to argue in this book that God, if substitutionary atonement is true, God can't forgive properly. Because if God if God was to forgive, he wouldn't need Jesus to have basically stood in our place for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so I think it... It completely devalues mm. the holiness and the justice of yeah, God. So I was say, yeah. um, yeah. It completely distorts what. So you're overemphasizing one of the attributes exactly. to the to the neglect of exactly. the others. Yep. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and so when we we think of substitutionary atonement, and the the charge is you have a wrathful father who wants to punish man, and Jesus kind of steps in between and takes the beating that we were supposed to take. And so how is this not child abuse mm-hmm. is essentially the, the logic that goes into it. Um, and I think what, what people tend to do in those situations is take a, they, they take what are human um, functions and things that we see we see child abuse happening. We we understand even some of the psychology behind it and some of the, the different elements, and we infuse that into this relationship of Jesus and the Father. Um, and it 
it does two things primarily. One, it completely misses the unity that is within the triune God. Um, this isn't a matter of the Father has one will, Jesus has another. Mm-hmm. They are completely and totally unified in this together. And so that even when Jesus is in the garden and he says, um, not like your will, not mine, like th- there is a unity there mm-hmm. that is, is per- the, the triune God is purposed in the same thing, that the plan of redemption from the foundation of the world was agreed upon among all within the Trinity. Second element um, is Jesus' own words. He says, no one kills me. I lay down my life myself. He was a a selfless sacrifice. He gave of himself. Um, No one takes it from him. He lays it down of of his own accord. And I think knowing those things and really what Scripture says about the triune nature of God and Jesus as a self-sacrifice, it's the whole idea of divine or cosmic child abuse is it's frankly nonsense. Yeah. It doesn't fit with Scripture. Right. Even when you think of Isaiah 53 mm-hmm. and the suffering the servant passages. The him yeah. Laid on him the burden. Yep. You think of um, 1 Corinthians 5, 21, just very popular verses that are used for substitutionary mm-hmm. atonement. But even you think back in history and you have the the Passover, well, you can go back to creation and the God killing of animals to clothe yeah. Adam and Eve. Um, then you get into the Passover and you get into the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament. From the very beginning, God is God is setting up a even pattern. Even Abel is killing Even him. Abel, yeah. Mm-hmm. God, God is setting up a pattern of there is a, a sacrifice that stands in the place of sinners. And to disregard that is to disregard the heart of the gospel, really. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I would recommend, for anyone who wants to dive into this subject more, um, Nine Marks just put out in a journal on substitutionary atonement. Um, I think it came out this week, actually. Nice. You can get those on Amazon. Yeah, you can get them on Amazon. Um, you can find them on their website, I believe. And there's even a podcast that's associated with it that um, I think Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman did this past week that was um, talking about a lot of these things. Nice. So if, you, if you're interested in it, I would go in that direction. That's great. You guys want to add anything to that? Uh, it's, it's interesting just how we allow our emotions to mm-hmm. shape Mm-hmm. what we want to believe. And I think yeah. this this just boils down to people just not liking the idea yep. of Jesus being killed um, for our sin. They don't like that idea, so they come up with another plan <laughs> that they can live with. You know, um, and I, that's all I think I see is happening here. You know, whether it's, it's the, the whole cosmic child abuse thing or Jesus was just an example thing. I mean, that, that's another thing. Oprah believes that, so that tells you all that right there. But anyway, um, but I, also the scripture comes to mind, First Timothy 4, you know, um, in the last days people will depart from the truth and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And I think that's what these come from. These are just doctrines of demons, you know. And probably the Steve, right? Steve is his name. Yeah. Would not say I'm espousing demonic doctrine here. Well, you know? No, of course not. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean he's not contrary to the <laughs> yeah, truth yeah. is ultimately satanic and demonic. Exactly, he's the father yeah. of lies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's good. I I, I, I want to talk more about that. However, yeah, that's, um, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's we could do another podcast on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, next one's mine. 
What can the church do to help make sure the pastor, and I, I assume this is the lead pastor, the, the main preaching pastor, and his family do not become isolated in ministry? Um, and, and I think we can roll that out to the elders too, you know, pastoral elders. I think a couple things might be helpful to put on the front end of the question. Um, I think that pastors do get isolated. Um, but I, I don't think all pastors get isolated. Um, so it's not of necessity that if you're a pastor of a church, whether lead or you know, non-lead pastor, that you're, you and your family automatically are isolated from the people who you shepherd and serve. I don't think that's necessary. However, if, if it is happening, um, I think that it's really helpful for the um, one, the other pastors to be regularly communicating and being transparent with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really thankful that we have recently begun to implement uh, weekly discussions surrounding personal integrity and devotions and heart you know, temperature and all that. So I'm really appreciative of that. But also, I think that for the average, and, and I, I use average loosely, a church member, you know, for the church members to regularly check in would be helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's easy to put people higher than they, they really should be. And so though pastors are shepherds, you know, pastor, um, the flock of God, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, that doesn't mean that the, the shepherds are not also sheep. And so if if the shepherds are also sheep, that means they're liable to the same temptations that all sheep are liable to. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that there's some pastors who either struggle with a, I need to be, you know, there is a standard, First Timothy 3. Um, there's a standard in First, uh, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1. And so that standard, I think, could be over-realized. You know, no, no one meets those standards perfectly, only Christ, and that he fulfills that, those pastoral standards. But there is a legitimate standard, but that doesn't mean that there's no struggles. That doesn't mean that there's no wrestles. That doesn't mean that there's no, you know, depression or loneliness or, you know, real fights with sin. So in that way, the shepherds are just like sheep. And so the same way that you would, I think check in on any other sheep. Hey, how you doing? How's your family doing? You know, we're, the pastor should not be kind of like isolated as the untouchable, uh, unable to be approached and, you know, held up in his ivory tower, not taking calls and not able to be held accountable. So if I think if the pastor is legitimately living out a discipleship life, also being willing to receive correction and willing to receive suggestion and questions, all that. I don't think it would happen. Um, Pete, I'm curious. Your dad was a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, you know, from the from you being small and looking at the family dynamic, is that a real temptation? You know, I'm newer to the, to the pastoral ministry here. Um, do you think that that happens more often than we'd like to think it does? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, and this is obviously my experience probably reading into it more than anything else but there's a there's a level of the pastor depends on the church dude the pastor has to be a certain way has to has to operate a certain way and so 
it is very easy for a pastor to become isolated, to not expose how they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, because the depending on how the church responds, I mean that's, that's your livelihood. You could lose your job. You could yeah. lose, job. You could, you could lose um, a, a lot of respect within the church. You could lose any real authority to teach within the church. Um, you basically everything you've gone to school for, worked for your whole life is now gone um, because you opened up about things you struggled with or. Or things that you um, you just felt you needed to share, and so there's there's definitely a a mindset that you as a pastor and even a pastor's family, you kind of have to guard yourself a little bit. You can't be fully open about who you are and what you're like, um, because if you are, and that rubs somebody the wrong way, or somebody doesn't like that, it becomes into a much larger issue within the church Um, now I would say to that church should um, be intentional about not not allowing that to happen but I do think it needs to be something intentional I think the the church needs to be aware of while yes the pastor is in a position of authority and teaching and and that he he is just a person He's, he's an individual who struggles with sin and should be held accountable and should be should be asked how they're doing. Um, should be taken care of in a way that they're just as they are caring for the souls of the people in the church. Their souls being cared for, um, whether that's inside of the church or there's mechanisms outside of the church, other pastors in the area or um, other opportunities within denominational structures that allow for that. That I think should be intentionally pushed or put in place by the church. Yeah, that's helpful. You guys want to chime in there? You guys have known pastors. You are pastors. <laughs> For the person listening to this who's a member and is thinking, what can I be doing besides praying for my, my pastor? What would you say are maybe two or three tangible things that they could do? And maybe maybe specifically in this season of social distancing. For I like me. food. Take me to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I concur. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Not right now, but... (laughs) Right, yeah. I would would say... um, Encouragement is powerful. Mm. Um, and, And it shows in that how many times have you been encouraged... But then when one person says one thing that might even be slightly a, a criticism, you can remember, it's so loud in your head. It's yeah. so bold in That's text yeah. where the, the encouragements are, are very, you almost don't believe them. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. there is such power in encouragement. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Bible does speak to this. Romans uh, says, I think it's 13, outdo one another in showing yeah. honor. And so to, to give honor to those, that's also a text in Romans, I think it's 12 or 13. Um, honor to who honor is due. Oh, no man, nothing. Honor to who honor is due. So I'm not saying that you flatter in a false way. That's not helpful at all. But to, to be encouraged is strengthening. It's fueling. Uh, and so I think just the regular encouragement can... can uh, Make make a pastor want to keep doing what they're doing. Where if you feel like, man, 
none of this matters. When I try to help, it hurts. Uh, you know, to quote that book earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or no one really cares. Yeah. And, you know, you, you just, you, you don't enter with zeal, which we're commanded to. Those who lead, lead with zeal. Yeah. You know, I'm quoting a lot of Romans here in 12 and 13. But the idea is, you know, encourage the, the people who are supposed to be encouraging you. It can actually, in a, in a boomerang way, encourage you more. It will benefit you more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say this, Justin, too, to, to answer your question. When I have been, and I often try to be intentionally transparent, I've had people sometimes say to me, like, in, in sermons, someone will listen to it, other pastors even, like, I can't believe you said that. Mm-hmm. Like, not in a rebuke way, but yeah. like, I can't say that. Yeah. And I've been like, well, why can't you say that? Mm-hmm. Like, why can't you be that upfront with your people? Because what I've experienced is, if I can tell people where I struggle or where I failed, yeah. it then, then they feel the freedom to say, oh, well, me too. Yeah. And what I've noticed is if I struggle in this way, then you struggle in this way. Mm -hmm. And so for me to hide it is basically then not enabling you to come out and expose yours. But when I do expose whatever it is, um, I find that people then immediately open up to me, whether in counseling or in Mm -hmm. sermons Mm -hmm. or in just regular discipleship relationships, premarital counseling, whatever it is. When I confess my struggles, I all of a sudden see people open up. Yeah, that's true. Yep. I've seen that too. Where if I'm pretending like I got no issues, everything's good, yeah. it's, you know, you are intentionally putting on a facade, as Pete was talking about, and you do tend to isolate mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. Uh, by doing so. But it could be out of fear. You know, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want people to think ill of me. I don't want to lose my authority. But what I've noticed is it actually gives you more authority because you, you're, you're seen as authentic and real. Yes and amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and then yeah. the third, I don't know if someone want to add a third. That was two. He said three concrete yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Encouragement. The pastor himself could be transparent. Yeah. What's a third? Mm-hmm. Eddie said, "Take me out to eat." <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's. I always find it a, a bit challenging. Maybe this is something you. This is something you should not do. We'll make that our third. Okay. Um, I've been around people, and even people who are like members of the church, of a church, where I'm in a leadership position, and they like use a four-letter word around me, and they're like, "Oh no, 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 no sorry, sorry." Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. it's okay. Like you yeah. don't have to like, yeah, you don't have to put on a facade around me. And that would be maybe the third is like, don't treat me like I'm mm. the person who's here to bust you. You know, like we want to shepherd and love and walk alongside each other and obviously call each, you know, lovingly help each other out of sin. But when people are intentionally uptight or, uh, putting on a facade because they know I have a title, it makes it uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 Less genuine. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Like genuine for both of yeah. us. So it's like, Oh, yeah. just, you know, if that's yeah. what you say, just say it. Like, yeah. don't feel like you have to hold back from me. Yeah. Cause I'm not, I, I, I don't, I don't, determine or reveal sin the Holy Spirit does so like if it's wrong it's wrong and me being here is not going to make it any less wrong <laughs> so just say it you know we can be honest with each other and I, I to your point want to model that same uh, that same transparency around people too yeah I agree I, I you know, when people do tend to um, 
behave a certain way because they know you're a pastor right. or even just right. the fact that you're saved, you know. Yeah. Um, it does make it uncomfortable for me, too, sometimes, you know, when people do that and say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean it, you know. And I get it, and I understand they're trying to respect you, and I get that, and that's not, it's not a bad thing, but, yeah. but it can make you uncomfortable, too. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, you don't really have to do that, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously there are certain things I don't, I don't want you to do in my presence, but... <laughs> But I mean, just you know, just yeah, things yeah. you can do in anybody's presence. Things you do in anybody's presence, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I would agree with that, yeah, yeah. I'm usually the one making people uncomfortable dropping four letter words. Love you, bro. I do drop that four letter word on people, and they do get uncomfortable. Some guys, I'm like, hey, love you, bro, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> they just kind of look at me like, oh, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it, but yeah, and then okay, I just whatever. Keep doing it, and then eventually they're like, love you too. <laughs> Yeah, certain people, okay, I think I can say it with him, but not with him. <laughs> you know, you begin to know which ones you can say it to. <laughs> What's our... All right, so here's the next one. Um, well, or do we want to split this up and, and do the second half of the question yeah, on another just, podcast? I think we should split it. Okay. Yeah, it's we can take more time. Yeah. All right, sounds good. Rather than rush through these next several questions, which there are quite a few more, we will we'll shut this one down. We'll do a part two uh, very soon. Uh, thankful for you guys thinking through these questions and interacting. Mm-hmm. I had a good time, and I hope that those who listen are benefited. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing this again. Amen. 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 All right, brothers. Love you guys. Culture conversations out.